0: Welcome to Open Deeply Season 3, as we burn down shame and reclaim our power. The truths society pushes into the shadows are the very things that connect us. Truths around sexual authenticity, the wisdom of plant medicine, the pursuit of equity and beyond. To open deeply, as Jack Kornfield says, takes tremendous courage, a warrior spirit. This unconventional path takes just that. So join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie.
1: Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Sunny Megatron and my co-host is Kate Laurie. Our last episode, episode 37, was a crossover episode with American Sex Podcast, where I talked about grooming in kink relationships. Today, we're building on and broadening that discussion in a number of ways, including how it might show up in non-monogamy with our guest, Rachel Kranz. Let me introduce you. Rachel Krantz is the author of Open, an uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy, which is a 2023 Lambda Award finalist. She's also host of the new podcast, Help Existing. And you're familiar with bustle, right? She named it. She's one of Bustle's three founding editors, plus served as both senior features editor and senior news editor. She was also the homepage editor at the Daily Beast and is a recipient of the Peabody Award, the Robert F. Kennedy Center for Justice and Human Rights International Radio Award, the Investigative Reporters and Editors Radio Award, and the Edward R. Murrow Award for her work as an investigative reporter with Why r media rachel hosted bustle's podcast about taboo topics called honestly though and her work's been featured in countless media outlets including new york magazines the cut vice the guardian npr newsweek salon and many more she's also on the advisory board for sentient media and the board of directors of r henhouse if you'd like to check out rachel's full bio and links visit our episode description. Now, before we get to our conversation with Rachel, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy, nor is it a replacement for therapy. So if you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by anything in this episode's content, please get support. Call or text a friend, a therapist, or the nationwide crisis line that you can now reach by dialing 988.
2: 98- eight. All right, before we begin this interview, I'd like to create a framework for this episode. All three of us have been in kink or non-monogamous relationships that we now realize had some toxic patterns of manipulation, grooming, gaslighting, etc. Often those relationships are mixed with amazing highs that keep one hooked. Right now, there are listeners that are currently in a relationship like this or have a pattern of being in such relationships. So perhaps we can start off in the thick of it, that time when you are immersed in such a relationship, including the strong emotional tidal pools that make such a relationship addictive, sexy, intoxicating, but deeply torturous at times. And then we can move to the first few years after getting free and finally where you are now and who you want to become. And perhaps in doing so, the three of us can provide a roadmap, some coping skills, or at least some hope for someone who feels lost in this pattern within kink and or non-monogamy. So let's get started with part one of this, in the thick of it. I'd like to ask you, Rachel, can you start off by telling us a little bit about your book or maybe give us the pleasure of hearing a page from your book?
3: Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And I love that intention for this conversation. So Open is a story of my first open relationship, also my first dom-sub relationship, but one that unfortunately was not very clearly defined didn't have boundaries or safe words and and those sorts of things and so it's a lot the story of what happens when you're in a dynamic that that like that that's super compelling for the first time but also maybe don't have a lot of safety around it a lot of safeguards for knowing where your own limits are and i thought i could read from since you just said, in the thick of it, just a little bit from around the middle of the book, when Adam and I, who have been together now at this point, I guess two years, and have gone through a few of these cycles of fighting and making up, and there's starting to be more gaslighting, and things are starting to escalate more in the fights, and I have this time tried to leave for several weeks, but end up deciding to come back. And so this is from the chapter that's called How Slash Why I Stayed. Beauty and the Beast was the first movie I saw in theaters. I watched it on my dad's lap because I was too small to see otherwise, barely three years old. I remember my friend Emily sitting next to me, perched just the same. When the wolves came on screen and attacked Belle's hapless father, we both burrowed our little faces into our respective dads' chests, tiny hands cupping even itty-bittier eyes. I remember feeling afraid, but mostly performative, already knowing that the daughters and fathers were each doing exactly what they were supposed to do. This was part of the fun, that we were just adorable. And the worlds were scary, sure, but mostly what was chilling was the idea that a father could be so pathetic and old as this bumbling roly-poly on screen that a daughter might have to one day grow up and protect him. The lesson imparted by the end of the film, for the truly heroic daughter, ensuring your father's future doesn't have to stop at taking his place in prison. It could also include seducing and transforming his wealthy captor, thus marrying the family into royalty. I know he looks vicious, but he's really kind and gentle, Belle tells the mob that wants to kill the beast. Then, later, as the beast is bleeding out, she cries, Of course I came back. Oh, this is all my fault. Please, please, please don't leave me. I love you. Thus breaking the curse and healing his wound with those three magic words. Beast turns back into prince, externally and internally transformed. Lessons learned, he won't be so unkind anymore. Thanks to the very power of her love, he has been saved. Nobody understands him like I do. There's something sweet and almost kind, Rachel sings to herself again and again. Of course I came back. I love him. One of my only confidants in L.A. told me she couldn't be friends with me anymore if I went back to him. It's too toxic, she texted. I pretended not to see her at Caldi Coffee and my dance studio Heartbeat House from then on. I'd made my choice, and I was ashamed. I'd agreed to come back to LA on the condition we start couples counseling and take a break from dating other people again. Adam was amenable, certainly relieved, but he still refused to apologize for holding me down. I missed my girl, my girl, Adam kept saying when I returned. He squeezed me so hard. It felt so much better than what I'd been feeling, so much easier to just give in to his version of reality. He had grateful tears in his eyes like he'd been returned to fortune. We should just get married already. Admit we're going to be together forever. It's just the way it is. I journaled that night that I was thinking then over and over. I missed you, Daddy. Why would you hurt me, Daddy? I could go on like another page with that scene, but maybe that's a good place to stop.
2: No, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I resonated with that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So, Let's get into your experiences. I want to know, when it all started, what was it that you loved about non-monogamy, about kink?
3: Well, I had been a serial monogamist when I met Adam at 27 and felt claustrophobic within each relationship after the kind of initial high of falling in love would wear off. I also think I didn't really realize up until I got into a relationship with Adam that I really desired a kinky relationship and hadn't really had a chance to explore my submissive side and found that was very compelling to me as someone who was really accomplished professionally and working really hard and had kind of always been the emotional guardian of my parents in certain ways growing up it felt really good to all of a sudden have this older very dominant man take care of me in many ways and and who was so confident and intelligent in a way that I honestly hadn't really bought in any of my past partners I'd always still kind of felt like the one steering the ship so that was very compelling on that end and we fell into a like Daddy girl dynamic, except that Adam didn't really believe in kink, which was a big red flag. He said, Oh, we're just being us. Those people are pretending. So that was kind of an initial red flag, but I was so inexperienced. I was just like, Okay, maybe he's right, you know. And with non monogamy, that was really, I had read Sex at Dawn. I knew people who were trying polyamory and non monogamy. I was curious about it. And monogamy had not been working that great for me. And here was Adam, had experience with it. It was something I had always been curious to try to see if it would work better. And it was also kind of his terms of this is what he was going to need eventually in a long term relationship. And I fell in love with him quickly and was still very nervous with the idea. And he kind of proposed that the relationship could just be open on my side at first until I was comfortable with him doing other things. So that kind of eased me in and I started seeing some of the perks of it for myself, mm-hmm. exploring parties and and threesomes and the like.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting how he started things out because allowing you to start out first could really make someone feel safe and, and held, mm-hmm. you know? And, and so I'm, I'm kind of curious, about what words, what particular things he might have said or done that really kept you hooked in the, you know, even though you maybe down the road saw that it was kind of toxic for you. Like for me, just to self-disclose, when I was in that dynamic, I mean, he wasn't consciously doing this, but he would just say, just be logical. And a lot of people say that, and they're not trying to gaslight or anything. But with my brain... That shifted me to just being up in my head. I was ignoring the knife drop I felt in my gut. I was shoving down my feelings as just being kind of petty and jealous. And so like, I think of our emotional compass as being kind of like our mind and our emotions and our body working in tandem from a grounded, centered place. And so just by saying that, he would kind of get his way a lot because I'd go into Spock mode and go, oh, well, she's always been kind to me, so why shouldn't I just get out of the way and, and not discuss this that much. So I'm just kind of wondering for you, what were some of the things that happened during that time that maybe, maybe it had you saying yes, when it wasn't a true yes, that sort of thing?
3: Yeah. Well, just be logical. is definitely a phrase, you know, appealing to like, if you just would look at this rationally, you'll see that nothing has changed. And that was kind of a refrain of like, nothing has changed. You have nothing to be worried about no matter what stage we were at of opening up, there was a sort of viewing of any jealousy as immature, petty, or even unloving. And so he'd say, "Just, just trust me, you know, like, if you really love me, and you really trust me, then you should be okay with whatever I'm doing is kind of the subtext, right? And and that was compelling because a lot of times i saw it was my shit to deal with right it, it got very confusing because as you're navigating these things for the first time you know you see yourself not always being your best self not always having your your logic and your gut match up at all and and feeling like something could feel really wrong on a gut level but you know in your head you're like but i morally believe there shouldn't be a problem with this and he's not Doing anything, even maybe that clearly breaks the agreement. So what is my problem? Why do I feel so unsafe? So yeah, there's a lot of that. He would say, maybe we should get married, huh? Like a lot of the times. So he would say, like, I want to get you pregnant during, like, these kind of outlandish things that he didn't actually mean or want, like during day to day life. But then he would kind of be overcome with this passion and and have these sort of half proposals and and these kinds of things of you're you're my woman, my girl, very possessive language that I felt was really compelling. He would refuse to say anyone else was even a, a girlfriend, even when they clearly were and say like, no, you're my only girl, no one else I'm gonna whatever. So there was a lot of words that weren't necessarily matching up with what he would say to his friends about his beliefs about things at a dinner party, right? So what was being said to me behind closed doors often didn't match up his sort of public proclamations about heteronormativity and stuff like that. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, it
2: sounds like a bit of a mind fuck.
1: <laughs> yeah and and listening to all of that I share you know my phrases where you know let's be logical, let's go about this like adults let's the you know that sort of va yes, 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 and for you being in that situation that in one respect was really hot, and really comforting, you felt cared for, but at the same time, really confusing, really anxiety-producing, and all of these different opposing emotions and feelings tugging at you. What were your emotional anchors as you went through all of that?
3: Well, to some extent, my friends, though not to the extent they are now, because as the relationship went on and became more and more unhealthy one of the symptoms of course was more and more isolation from my friends and adam saying things of like don't talk about me badly to my to your friends because you're gonna poison them against me and the relationship and so i started withholding a lot of things you know stuff that's just really like pretty textbook <laughs> but at first my friends were more part of the anchor and picture Kathy Labriola, who's, you know, the still my counselor. She was my counselor for a lot of that time on the phone. So she was an anchor. And other than that, I mean, unhealthy, a lot of it was unhealthy coping mechanisms and anchors like smoking weed every day so that I could just float above myself and be cool with whatever was happening. And, exercising too much just to sort of like have a sense of catharsis and escape from myself and so you really see throughout the story how I kind of start out a a relatively self-assured or at least accomplished young professional woman who has these kind of ideas about what she wants or what she deserves and increasingly my self-esteem starts to to drop under the conditions of yeah the, the mind fucking and yeah i get increasingly isolated and i guess the coping mechanisms become less healthy
2: yeah i think both sunny and i can relate we've been there i mean i think when you're really deep in it it can kind of feel like you've been sucked into a black hole and that there's no way to get out and yet all three of us have but i'm wondering what if there was any kind of internal reality checks that you use any mental hacks that you used that kept you from completely being sucked into the abyss that inevitably led to you being able to pull out of it?
3: Well, it is complicated because I think I was abusing marijuana by the end, but I also think that it was an important aspect of what allowed me to kind of look at the situation from a distance and kind of observe what was happening almost as my future self. I also, I didn't have a regular meditation practice back then, like I did now, but I see how I was trying. I had like a certain app that would play like meditative music and I would smoke weed and and listen to it for hours. So it was like, I was still too uncomfortable to really have a regular practice, sit with my thoughts and feelings, but I I see how I was trying to use weed or use these other things that might have in moderation been okay to have a sense of like dropping into the present moment, having some sense of both maybe a little more connection with my body, but also like an observing someone who's like sort of watching what's happening from the outside and observing. And I think also the journaling and the recording was another way I sort of tried to have some sort of light at the end of the tunnel or this idea of future self of, I didn't think I was really probably going to write a book about it one day, but an agent had approached me with the idea, seeing a few articles I'd written. And so as things got increasingly unhealthy and confusing, and as Adam would say more and more in arguments, you know, you're remembering things wrong. I didn't say that. Repeat back to me what I said. I was like, okay, can I just record this since I remember everything wrong? And and he was like, yeah. And so the recording itself, the keeping a journal, that became a way of feeling like, you know, there's some sort of objective truth I was holding on to, or that even if I couldn't understand what was happening right now, that at least later I would have this record I could decode in the future and understand what the fuck was happening. So that was also important.
1: Yeah. And again, like everything you said, I'm like relate, relate. For me it was when I started keeping a journal and really being able to look back and be like, I did not fabricate that. It okay. Yeah. And now in the day and age of everyone having a cell phone and things being recorded as looked at as relatively normal, those are good tools to use. So, okay. So like in, in these types of relationships, absolutely Abuse can happen in queer relationships, relationships of all different sorts of genders. But in your relationship, like a cishet normative relationship, that patriarchal flavor in those gender norms, you know, give it a, a certain flavor, especially in these alt-sex relationships, polyamory, kink, etc. So can you talk about that, how those gender norms flavored the relationship and the abuse?
3: yeah. Well, it was extremely confusing because first, before it was even feeling abusive, like in the very beginning, I was like, oh, this is so sexy to me. But I felt kind of almost guilty about it. I was like, we're just adhering to exactly what society expects, right? This sort of like dominant man who's very kind of yeah just like thinks he knows best about everything and is kind of in control and is telling me what to do but then it turns out like i'm finding that really comforting on a certain level or like a relief and sexy and what does that say about me so there was a lot of that questioning and you know at first i think i say in the book that it, it was kind of luxurious in a way to like adhere so much in certain ways to what society was expecting for the first time in that kind of dynamic to feel there was a sort of like smugness to it especially when you'd say we're just being us i felt like i was in a place so well cast that maybe like gender roles weren't even acting at all it was just like our natural selves and And at the same time, I had enough awareness to know that, like, the bill comes due on that. Like, it's not, (laughs) there's going to be a cost to this. Historically, there's a cost to this kind of dynamic, usually. So I was just, like, navigating a lot of that. And then that combined with it being my first non-monogamous relationship, well, the non-monogamy made it a little bit more subversive right so it was like especially in the beginning when it was sort of revealed his kink was like hot wifing of seeing me with other men it created a new paradigm where i was like oh i'm allowed to want as many partners as i want and this is really about my pleasure and even though it's I feel kind of kept in this way that's sexy. I'm also very free. So really we're subverting, we're playing with this whole patriarchal model because like I can actually fuck whoever I want. And so I'm I'm not really property, right? I'm not really restricted, but it, as the years went on, it just got more and more complex. Where in certain ways that was true and I was more free, to have experiences with other people than I had ever been in other monogamous relationships. But unfortunately, that freedom became its own strange form of control of if you leave, no one else is ever going to let you be this free or love you in this way or want to see you with other men and think that's exciting and all these things that I had grown increasingly used to enjoying.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's so challenging, you know. It's it's one of those things where when when someone on the outside sees a relationship like that and it's just nutshell, they might think why didn't you leave? But when you really read a memoir like yours, you can see the complexity, you can see how confusing it is. You know, so now we're shifting into part 2 of this interview where we're shifting into breaking free and the first few years after breaking free. So I'm I'm wondering what it took for you to break free from this. And I'll just share, for me, again, it it came back to me starting to track my whole internal compass, like listening to the knife drop, like, you know, learning how to ground myself and just that whole somatic work along with starting to connect with friends that maybe weren't his friends and, and building up my career, like all these things that were separate from him and then also not telling him everything that I was doing, not lying to him, but just not showing him all my cards. So I'm just wondering what it took for you.
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one I always love to like ask other people who've been in situations like this, of like, was there a moment? And and the thing is, it's never just one moment. It's like many, many, and you see throughout the book. I mean, before I read, this is not even the first time I've tried to leave, right? So there were many times throughout the relationship where I tried to leave and got sucked back in. But it's always interesting to ask people like, what was the final straw? And, you know, sometimes it's dramatic, like in this book, I won't exactly reveal what it is, but the thing that it was, was not like by any means, probably the, the textbook worst thing he did over the course of the relationship. It was just something that kind of broke the illusion that I had been hanging on to that no one else was as moral as he was which was kind of the narrative of the relationship no one else yeah he was really hard and harsh sometimes but it was kind of like no one else was going to be as real with me and as honest and that I really believe that and it was something that broke the illusion of that being true and I realized that he was lying and yeah I've heard from another friend it was just one moment where this relationship she'd been you know, embedded in for years with so many fights, so much trying to leave that he was just like yelling at her in the kitchen. And she just kind of looked at him and she was just like, kind of like saw some glimmer of how actually insecure he was, you know, and, and kind of whiny and it just something in the illusion broke. So it is always so interesting to think, what is that? But of course, like to get to that moment, there have to be so many other, as you see along the way, like so much other grieving, so much other little, yeah, ways of getting things set up, hopefully, so that it's more possible for you to leave. I was in the Bay Area, away from LA, helping take care of my uncle. So I think the fact that I was far away when it actually happened and physically in a different space was very helpful. And just that I finally took the step at the end of blocking and cutting off communication for a while not to leave that channel open because I had learned that, yeah, if I left it open, I would just get sucked back in. So that was kind of the more immediate things. But the long-term things that helped me come back to myself, it came back, those came more after I had actually left.
1: Yeah, yeah. Again, relate. Yeah, I'm, I'm going back thinking of, to me, I kind of describe it as like, not one big thing, but it's when the bar is like that bar of soap kind of whittles away in the shower. And then it becomes, it's like my bar of soap slowly whittled away and it whittled away enough to be like, this bar of soap is just falling apart. (laughs) (laughs) And that was, it was like that one moment where the little tiny sliver you have left just goes, "Eh," and it's like, this is it. Yeah. Yeah. So now that you are, you know, that relationship is years behind and you have your book and you're on the other side of this, what now do you like about non-monogamy about kink and what things do you also still struggle with
3: well non-monogamy i am at an interesting point with where i'm kind of reassessing what form i wanted to take in my relationships in my life because i've continued to struggle with jealousy and attachment issues even in healthier situations And also just with compartmentalizing. So I know very much that I am polyamorous and that I can love multiple people, but I can't always feel that in a way that doesn't end up feeling very painful for at least two of the people involved where it's kind of compartmentalized in the right way where you don't feel torn, you don't feel like someone's getting the short end of the stick. So that's led me to assess more whether I I didn't really identify as a swinger or more with the casual sex aspect of things, but there is an interesting middle ground that many of them have, have found where they seem to find ways to compartmentalize that work for them or create certain containers or boundaries. So I I guess I'm thinking a lot about, even if it's not the most romantic or appealing idea to me to have more of those limitations, whether that might actually work better for me in practice as a compromise. So time will tell on that. I think there's many, many options in between total monogamy and total polyamory and that a lot of people would probably be happiest somewhere in the middle. So I think it's figuring out what that middle looks like. And of course, it's going to be different with every relationship. As for kink, yeah, that's continued to be a big part of my romantic life and I think we will be moving forward. It seems like I, I really enjoy in a primary relationship being a sub in a sort of healthy relationship with a dom who is a little bit more of that sort of Daddy Dom vibe in a healthy way, who is protective and nurturing and and caring. But you know, I'm always open to that changing too. That's just what's been true the past decade or whatever and and what feels true still now. But I wouldn't be surprised if 10 years from now it shifts again. Cause if anything, this whole journey has just taught me that to be very agnostic about my future and and about my own long-term desires or needs, and just to embrace that those can continue to shift and evolve, and that's that's okay. I don't have to attach too strictly to any particular label.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what's so nice about this. If you start to Break down, be being rigidly monogamous or rigidly non-monogamous. You can kind of be fluid and allow yourself to shift and change over the course of your life, you know. And you've already kind of led into this, but I'm I'm wondering when you envision your your future best authentic self, whether it's regarding your sexuality or gender or your career. I'm just wondering what comes to mind and if there's any kind of future endeavors, anything that you would like to share with us that you're working on?
3: I think, hopefully, that it would be someone who's continuing to write in some way and who still cares about helping others in whatever way is effective. So, I mean, I'm passionate about helping people and also helping animals. So I hope that my writing and podcasting and whatever work I might do if I go back to a day job that would continue to be like more in service of just liberation of all beings and not profit or power. So yeah, I hope to keep like heading in that direction where I'm hopefully able to be comfortable enough to not have to worry too much about money would be great. But I also don't want to have that or or fame or more traditional ideas of success being what guides me so much as like what's gonna be helpful. Yeah, I would like that to keep driving me more.
2: Yeah, I, I think I'd like to close with all three of us sharing something that we would, you know, if we were gonna give some advice or if we were gonna give some feedback to somebody that's in the thick of it, what would you say to that person that's really having a hard time? Maybe they're a little isolated. Maybe, you know, they're questioning themselves. I mean, for me, I've already said it. I'd say, you know, try and get grounded and then listen to your full compass, your thoughts, your body sensations, and your your emotions from that grounded, centered place. And, And that can really help you no longer lie to yourself about certain things. You know, certain truths just come, especially if you're kind of in a meditative state, sometimes It comes from outside of you and has dropped down into you, some sort of truth. And then I think I'll go to Sunny. What would you say to someone out there struggling?
1: Ooh, okay. So taking from my past self, like me looking back going, "Ah, I wish I would have known this. I think the thing that tripped me up, that kept me in that place for such a long time was not realizing that abusive dynamics or relationships aren't black and white and that that person isn't necessarily a bad person all the way through, and that person doesn't necessarily know what they're doing. You know, when we talk about abuse just in the the larger social context, we often talk about it as if the person who is abusive is like calculated, like, oh, I I gaslit about this. Now I'm going to move on to this. And if I would have realized that, Yes, my partner seems very genuine when they're saying, No, I'm not doing this, or Yes, I believe that, or what? It's because they are. It's because they don't realize they're doing this on purpose. Maybe, you know, when we're having those conversations, those don't feel like lies to them coming out of their own mouth. And that's why it's so convincing. But it doesn't mean that the situation is still. Not abusive, etc. And for me, I felt that sincerity so much that I thought that that meant I must be wrong about everything, and that just wasn't the case. You know, it's complicated. So that's what I would tell other people. If the thing that's holding you back is like, but they really seem so sincere. They really believe. They do, and it's still not a good situation. They can both coexist at the same time.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. What would you say, Rachel?
3: Yeah, just echoing that 100%. That's something I get into in the book a lot, and really like tried to have Open be almost like a roadmap, especially after I leave, to not just end it with me leaving, but of what are the things that help me come back to myself and make sense of this. So, you know, hopefully, I hope that the book is helpful for someone in that situation, even as a resource for lots of other books they should read because so many books are referenced and and cited within it about gaslighting, about non-monogamy, about kink, about abuse, about whatever. So like, I think if you're really in the thick of it, first of all, I'd also say like, you're, you're not crazy. If someone's telling you you're crazy, like you probably, first of all, they shouldn't really be saying that. And Yeah, you're not crazy if you're feeling these things. And it's important to have a therapist if you can, someone to talk to, maybe someone who can help you make a plan to get a little bit of distance. It doesn't have to be for sure you're leaving, but to get just some distance from the situation and assess. And it's very hard to have a meditation practice when you're in the thick of it, but if you can... (laughs) And certainly once you leave, that has been a really essential part of my healing and coming back to a sense of just separating my own thoughts from someone else's when they've so become so embedded in your mind. So whatever that looks like for you, there's lots of different ways to meditate. It's not only focusing on the breath. There's lots of different methods out there. So looking into that can be a helpful way of recovering your center as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and just to tack on to that, like if you're someone in the thick of it and your brain is racing and you're being super negative to yourself and others and you're perseverating, and so it's a bit of a shit show in there, I say with love. If you're in that place, you know, I've been there too, then a quick hack that might help is just doing like maybe 12 deep breaths you know, and then checking in with yourself, because just the, the deep breathing can help you go into your parasympathetic nervous system a little bit. And that may help you, like get in touch with your internal compass in that way. With that being said, I was wondering, Rachel, if you could share, you know, we've been so happy to have you on the podcast. I was wondering if you could share just where people could find you, or anything, you know, where they can find your book and you and any other future endeavors you're up to.
3: Yeah, thanks. It's been great to be here. I am on Twitter and Instagram at Rachel Krantz. More on Instagram these days. My DMs are open. I love hearing from people. If you've read the book or even if you just want to talk about any of the stuff we talked about today, I'm I'm here for you. I, I want to be an ally in yeah helping you live your best life and freest life. I also have a website, racheljcrantz.com, where you can find out more about the book and a contact form for me. And what else? Open is available wherever books are sold. It also has an audiobook version I narrated and can request it from your local library. But yeah, any copies bought, much appreciated. Yeah.
2: All right, well, Thank you so much for coming on. And I just want to say, you know, the whole time I was reading your book, I was like, damn, she's got a lot of courage because, you know, it is just very, you lay yourself bare in that book in so many different ways whether it's talking about the subjects that we mostly focused on in this interview but also your sexuality and just like all these things that people that are not kind in the public could come down on you and I heard you say in another interview that people actually have been pretty kind and I was so happy to hear that for you because I I was a little concerned when, it, when I read it I was just like
3: please let the spirits on high protect her you know? <laughs> yeah no there's <laughs> been some hard stuff too, but that's why I say, yeah, like reach out to me. I encourage it. It feels like it creates this kind of love force field where the other stuff bounces off easier, the more love you have around you. So yeah, I just really appreciate everyone who's reached out with support.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you so much for talking about this. Cause that's what it's all about. When we all talk about it, if I would have had somebody talking about this back, you know, how many ever years ago? Oh, things would have been so much better. So appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank
2: you. Yeah, I mean that
1: that's such a good point. I mean, it's just like,
2: so I'm 54 now. When I was going through it, I was much younger, and yeah, we we yeah, you know, I don't think Sunny or I had any kind of guidance in that way, you know. And so a book like yours is really going to help people cut this dynamic short, so they don't have to go as long as maybe Sunny and I did. And struggled so much to get out of it. Anyway, we are very honored to have you as a guest. And I hope this discussion has helped some listeners who are either going through this or healing from something similar. And I hope you all like, listen, and subscribe to not only Open Deeply, but also Sunny's other podcast, American Sex. And I hope you continue to join us as we dare to open deeply.
0: Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Lurie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.